Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Hi, everybody. This is Slay House Publishing presents Lit Bits, and this is Jeremy. With me, as always, is Trevor. Hey there. And Curtis, who's actually not technically with me right at the moment. Um, he stepped out of the room. <laughs> I should wait and introduce him when he comes back in the room. And today we are joined by uh, Michael Kellemeyer, um, who is the, you're the editor, the illustrator, the the owner of Old Style Tales. You you wear a lot of hats. Like I do, yes. Yes. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show with us mm-hmm. today. Um, and uh we can edit this out later. I'll do like our little snappy things so that we know to edit, but sure. we don't record live. Just, I don't know if I ever told you that. So, so we'll have, I mean, we do record live, good but to then know. we, we, we don't post. It. Yeah. We yeah. don't, we don't release live. Yeah. We it's produce not, it in post. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. <clears throat> so, um, could you walk us through just a little bit of your background and how you got into, um, old style tales as a, as a, a press it's old style tales. Yeah. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so um, I started Old Style Tales in 2013. I, I think the idea came to me earlier that um, previous fall in 2012. I was a graduate student at Ball State University, wrapping up my master's in English literature. And, you know, I had the next step of, uh, you know, becoming a, uh, an English professor. That was something that I was working on. I um, I would go on to get an adjunct position later, I think it was that June of 2013. But I had this period of time in between then from like December to June where things didn't completely fall together. My wife will be the first to point out. Um, she was my girlfriend at the time and she was like, you know, you need to be applying to places. Um, and, and I am the kind of person who I was a little nervous because I didn't have my degree settled yet. And I was mm. like, I don't want to apply to places. and. Um, and then things fall through and I don't have a degree yet. Um, so of course, uh, you know, I, I had no trouble getting the position, um, at this community college in Southern Indiana, but I had this gap of about six months where I didn't have anything, um, at least, uh, career wise, you know, on my plate. And so I had this time on my hands and, towards the end of my graduate studies, you know, I started to kind of refine what it was that I was really interested in. Um, I think earlier, you know, as when you go into graduate school, a lot of times, you know, you have a tendency to be a little bit more pretentious and, you know, uh, up here, or I I suppose where you guys are too, you might call it highfalutin, um, where, (laughs) where you're just like, you're looking at things a little bit more as far as what would other people be interested in or what would like, make me sound better you know but as i got close to the end of my degree i was like you know what i love horror i love classic horror i love weird fiction um ghost stories especially are really my bread and butter and and one thing that i had always noticed was i loved in grad school when we get critical editions of like shakespeare or milton or um ernest hemingway you know i just love the footnotes i love the introductions i love the like okay that that was confusing but you know when this footnote clarifies it i'm i'm tracking i'm I'm more up to speed and so you know i always hated that when you get the the types of like classic core fiction anthologies that are a little bit more popular and i'm not disparaging them i'm not um Mm -hmm. you know putting them down but usually it's like a four-page introduction that's basically cribbed from the author's wikipedia page just as far as like their biography but almost nothing about the actual work um and that's it and then a bunch of you know copy pasted stories and so i was like hey i've got this time on my hands um and my idea was i was going to do four books i was going to which i i can't remember all four of them but i think i've only done one um i was going to do victorian horror stories edwardian horror stories um, and then a couple of other, I think, anthologies of, of different authors. And I started with the Victorian Horror Stories. This is the very first book I did. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to put some context, um, define confusing terms. Mm. Um, one thing I always, I remember I always was annoyed with was whenever they talked about money. You know, I'd be like, mm. 
okay, sure, that's great. That costs three shillings. But what's that actually mean? Because not only is that not even a currency anymore, you know, but it's a different <laughs> time period and it's a different country. And so just stuff like that, like making it make more sense. Um, and so I put together my favorite Victorian ghost stories. And then I didn't move on to the Edwardian ones because I was like, well, what about, you know, Frankenstein? What about Edgar Allan Poe? <laughs> and so I just, you know, started doing those. Um, and to, to kind of wrap up this, this part of the question, um, you know, I, I did get that job as an adjunct professor, but kind of notoriously, um, adjuncts don't get a lot of work you don't um, or say. pay. Yep. And so <laughs> though I had a job, um, I actually had a lot of time on my hands. And so I would crack out, you know, I'd keep cracking out books and it got more and more ambitious as I went along. Cause again, it was like, I just want to do four books. Um, and then at this point, I think I've got 35 in print. Um, yeah, so it's, I just do, it's a lot. Do year when I have the time. <laughs> That's awesome. I I think what's really interesting about that approach is, um, you know, we're we're readers of fiction, um, uh, like a lot of fiction. We yeah. we're constantly mm -hmm. reading, um, and we've thought a lot about you know these these old tales too because I, mm -hmm. I think a lot of them are readily accessible with the internet. Um, you know, they're they're all in the public domain, and yet reading them can be difficult. Um, as a, a world lit um, instructor, you know, I, I run into kids all the time who just, you know, they struggle with like the most modern um, yeah. edition of, of Beowulf or the most modern edition of Gilgamesh um, and trying to get them to read Victorian horror or read horror from the, you know, the, the turn of the century yeah. um, is really difficult because, you know, it was a very different world. The concerns were very different. The mm -hmm. language used to kind of obscure some of that meaning um, is, yes. is very yes. different. And so a lot of kids struggle with that, especially in an age when I think most of our communication is just like text messaging, you know? Yeah. How right. much how much actual reading is, is your average... Uh, your average teenager doing or your average 20 something doing you know so I think that um, trying to trying to revitalize some interest in some of these old stories by contextualizing it is really mm -hmm. an important you know literary mission I would even say yeah oh yes definitely yeah and, and that was one of the things that um, immediately I wanted to do and that I was inspired by was because um, as a grad student i was also um a graduate assistant so um you know i was one year out of my undergrad and here i was teaching um students who were like maybe three years younger than me mm -hmm. um, and so immediately and, and you know as a person who loves literature you know your circle of friends is going to be a little bit um you know homogenous and you're you're going to have really similar um passions and, and even you know the people who weren't english majors which honestly most of my friends weren't english majors but you know, they were in different fields of study that that were that gelled well with the idea of like, hey, like let's get together and talk about this, you know, this nonfiction book or this fiction book that's, you know, 100, 200 years old um, and just talk about ideas. But I quickly realized that there were a lot of really um, smart, um, potential-laden students out there who didn't have that same passion and the thing that was holding them back was they didn't get like some of the, they didn't get the stuff that if you're exposed to at an early age, you take for granted and you're just like, well, yeah, everyone knows that. No, they don't, you know, and yeah. it's not a shame on them for not understanding that because they're not mm. exposed to it. And so if you can remove some of those barriers, um, it's going to make it a lot easier for people to get into mm. it. Um, and so, yeah, that was definitely one of the very first things that I want to do is I want these stories to stay in the public consciousness. I want people to keep reading them and be inspired yeah. by them. Um, and I don't think it is, again, I don't think it's highfalutin to try to promote <laughs> Blackwood or, or uh, Mackin or, you know, even Poe um, or Hawthorne. Like these are still writers who um, they present a worldview that can push back on our own um especially mm. our comfort you know um and and that can be both in the sense of like what what we should be comfortable with but also things that like we might be too comfortable with mm. you know like the the kind of philosophical ideas that we tend to be able to avoid because 
of the 21st century, you know, and like because of cell phones and stuff like that. Um, and so I think it's really useful. This isn't just like, well, it's it's a cute thing that can entertain you on a boring day. Like it's more than that. These stories, mm. they have genuine cultural merit. And so I want them to be out there for people who don't have English majors to enjoy. Yeah. yeah. I think that was, uh, you know, kind of part of my follow-up is it, when we think about these stories, I think too, you know, we're so conscious of the current moment, right? And, yeah. and like, yes. you know, especially if you're, if you're, uh, I don't know, even a, a millennial, a Gen, uh, a Gen Zer, mm -hmm. you know, on the internet constantly, I think that, that you're, you're constantly just inundated with like the mm -hmm. feeling of now. Um, yes. There are conversations that crop up in social media spheres and it feels like they're here for a hot second. And then, you know, just a week mm -hmm. or two week remove, weeks removed, oh, yeah. nobody's, you know, talking about it anymore. Nobody remembers mm -hmm. it. And so, um, you, you know, when looking at, I think, the literature that you're talking about, where we are literally in some cases more than a century removed, mm -hmm. um, how do we continue to find the relevance in these yeah. stories, right? Like, how is it that, mm -hmm. that we continue to... Um, see these stories and, and maybe see them not just with an eye for what happened over a century ago, but for, mm -hmm. you know, with an eye of how for, they still relate today now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's such a great question. And I think one of the things that's interesting is one of the big answers to that is couched in that question, or at least in the, in the lead up that you had to that. Um, and it's the idea that I think right now, um, we are very present-minded, and we're very um, we're driven by what's fashionable or what's trendy. And and I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but it is true. Like the thing that is like literally quote unquote trending, um, that's what we're drawn to. Um, and art in the present moment can still be deeply universal. Um, but I think a lot of times we're driven to things that's like, well, this is you know, oh, ripped out of the headlines, you know, or this is speaking to a uh, a theme or an idea which might be, might be universal, but that it also might just be like trending. It might be something that we want to talk about now, but then in ten years maybe um, it's lost a little bit of its polish. Mm -hmm. And I think what makes good classic fiction, and, and that's that's the the key piece. Of this is it. <laughs> it has to be good. Just because yeah. it's old doesn't mean it's good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But if it, if it is classic fiction, the reason it's classic is because it is dealing with universal human issues. Um, and, and these are things that are absolutely timeless. You know, I mean, especially in the ghost story, we're talking about um, guilt. We're talking mm. about um, sin and not necessarily in a religious sense, but just the idea of like mm -hmm. doing a horrible thing to another human right. being and having that lurk in your conscience. Right. And we're talking about redemption justice um which especially in the victorian ghost story um justice is mm. it's in almost every ghost story almost every ghost story is about the pursuit of justice and because something has been broken in the living world which can only be alleviated by something supernatural because the the living world is so broken itself and so mm. um unjust and that's the whole point of these ghost stories is it points out like um, you can't, especially the one that really comes to my mind is there's a story called to be taken with a grain of salt by Charles Dickens. Mm -hmm. It's also called the trial for murder. Um, and it, it used to be like a extremely famous ghost story. It's felt it's fallen out of, um, fashion recently. Well, not recently, but you know, it's since probably the fifties, yeah. but it used to be like in every anthology. And the, the thing with this story is it's about a murder. Um, and the ghost has to attend the murder to kind of like prod the jury and point out um, point out fraud and point out injustices and the lawyers lying and the the witnesses are lying and he has to kind of like poke this one juror um, and he just pours all this energy into motivating this juror to convict his murderer and and you know the story I th I don't think a lot of people read it and see this about I think usually they kind of like some of the gory details. Um, but the thing that's always stood out to me is if this ghost isn't like working 24 seven to try to convict his murderer, that guy goes <laughs> off scot-free. Right. Um, and so a lot of these stories are about universal themes 
that it doesn't matter if it's a decade or it's a century, we're still um, really drawn to them. And, yeah. and that's the thing that I think makes good fiction good and makes it worth revisiting, even when it's not something that we can necessarily relate to culturally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I want to come back to this idea of like relatability to the, the current moment and, and cultural mm-hmm. stuff. But I, I also want to, you know, just double back really quick to, to talk a little bit about that, that concept of like breaking down the barrier to entry for a lot of mm-hmm. this stuff. Right. Yeah. So the way that you package your books, you include both, um, annotations but also illustrations mm-hmm. um and and the illustrations i think are really interestingly made they they almost look like they're almost like woodblock etchings or, or yeah. you know mm-hmm. something like that can you talk a little bit about your your process for illustration yeah. and and how that also can <laughs> contribute to breaking down barriers to entry yeah absolutely I, I have kind of a funny story of how that even started with my first um my first book the victorian ghost story i i love pencil drawings that's that's my favorite medium of um illustration and so i started just drawing white piece of paper you know pencil making Mm -hmm. black marks um and for some of the stories like it was pretty easy but i quickly realized if i'm going to do this genre most of the best scenes take place at night and that's a lot of shading (laughs) and so um I always like the look of like scratchboard, which is what most people think my art is. Um, they primarily think it's scratchboard, mm. um, but I'm also, <laughs> um, I, I recognize pretty quickly also that scratchboard isn't as forgiving and flexible. Mm. And so what I do is I still take a white piece of paper and a pencil and make black marks on it, but I draw it in negative. Mm. Um, and so if I'm drawing a moon, I just, you know, make a, a black ball kind of sh- use my finger to like, shade it and and give it a sense of um, dimension um then i scan that i invert the colors and then i touch it up um with software to make it a little cleaner but so essentially what you're seeing is a negative of the picture that i actually drew um and i i've always liked that look because it there's still even though it is a negative of uh a you know a positive picture there's something that's a little bit off about it like you, Mm. you get the sense of like you know, it's a little um, off-putting because you're, you're not seeing a lot of, uh, there's a lot that's left out, you know, because the, the yeah. focus is on light sources and what the light is hitting. And so it leaves an awful lot out. And I, I always like that um, that uh, approach. So as far as like making, oh my gosh, like it's a great question <laughs> about how this makes it accessible. Um, I'm a visual person. I, I really love illustrations when i was a kid i always collected those i don't know if you remember the great illustrated classics oh yes yeah these small um hardcover (laughs) books that you could get at like a dollar general for like three or four dollars yeah and they had an illustration on every page of like ivanhoe and um, moby dick and it just made it so like you got it better yeah you know and and i was getting those when i was in first grade and i just remember i didn't read most of the words but i got what was going on because of the illustrations that's another thing that i just always hated about critical editions uh you know that you would get in college is i think they and and i don't want to cast aspersions you know i don't know what they're actually thinking but i felt like they didn't include illustrations because it was like, well, we're, we're above that. We don't need illustrations. You can figure it out by reading, you know? And I just loved like, especially, you know, some of these short stories um, that I anthologized, like in the Victorian ghost story anthology, almost none of them have ever, ever been illustrated. Now, some of the more popular ones have, but like, um, you know, some of my favorites, you know, I would look online just to see what's been done, you know, out of mm-hmm. curiosity. And most of them had never even been illustrated. And I felt like that was a shame. Um, but I think a person gets one of these books, they they do have those introductions and analyses to kind of like help them walk them through almost in a conversational style about, hey, what's going on? Um, some of the stories have footnotes, um, you know, in the Victorian ghost story, it's fully annotated. Others, um, I will only annotate like the ones that have tons of, uh references and tons of critical attention but one way or another they have someone talking to them and then there's also an illustration that can help them you know formalize or visualize 
uh, a picture of what's going on. Who, who am I talking about? You know, mm. what do these characters look like? And obviously that's my interpretation. But when you see someone else's interpretation, you can also kind of be like, eh, I picture that guy a little bit more heavy set, or, you know, mm. I wouldn't have put it that way. And that also helps, you know, engender uh, a, an intellectual creative reaction to the piece. Mm. Yeah. I, that's a really and, great way of phrasing it. And, and by the way, we've got it like right here. Yeah, I saw that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> for me, for me, I, I've got to throw in there. For me, as a kid, it was the uh, the scary stories to tell in the dark. That's yes. what. <laughs> oh, I, I have that right by me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I loved those illustrations, and uh, I mean, yeah. everyone did. And I remember mm-hmm. when they uh, they redid them in like I think 2010 or 2012. Oh yeah. And honestly. The illustrations look beautiful, but everyone was pissed about it because yep. they were like, "Oh my gosh, you can't touch those." Yeah, how, those do, are you, some how do you retouch a, a classic? <laughs> yeah, we we can't must be done. we must be about the same age because I I had all of those uh, great classics illustrated books yes. that, that you mentioned. Um, I I'm I'm almost wondering if it, like. It, was that just like a late 80s early 90s kid <laughs> thing you know <laughs> i think i think it had to be yeah i was yeah. born in 87 so hey we are the same age the exact same age that's yeah. awesome that's great yeah um i mean I, i'm older than you guys and i i still had those kind of editions so mm-hmm. i think they're yeah. around for i i mean I, I to this day i probably never would have read um gulliver's yes. travels if not for oh for sure know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so helpful. It's it makes it accessible, and mm-hmm. I, I'm all about just making literature not something that is, um, that's like corralled over here for people who yeah. are you know quote unquote smart enough to get it. I think yeah. it needs to be something that's offered up to you know anyone who's even remotely curious, um, and all those barriers. You know, as you mentioned, yes, it's a major theme in my books. I really want to remove those barriers and make it something that people can. Um, can feel like, hey, this is something I have a shot at grasping, um, yeah. even if it's a challenge. And I mean, that's one thing too. We can't deny that these stories can be challenging. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I will argue that a lot of them are less challenging than people might ex- assume, mm-hmm. but some of them, they are challenging. Um, some yeah. of them are long. Some of them have big words, um, you know, and that, <laughs> that can be a barrier, but it's a challenge that's worth, you know, taking on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I take the same approach when teaching world literature. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, you know, part of part of the process of reading anything is just exposing yourself to it. You know, just yes. just being game to tackle it um, and knowing that you you do not have to walk away being an expert in any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not mm-hmm. that's not the point. The point, though, is that you you interact with it in good faith and with good e- effort. Yeah. So every every semester I teach a you know one of my world lit classes, um, I usually include something I've never encountered before, something that I I truly just don't know anything about, yeah. and I tell my students you know when we get to it I say you know this is the first time that I'm coming into this you know just yeah. like you, and I, I'm mm-hmm. going to model the process for you that I go through you know to read this stuff to think critically mm-hmm. about it and try to come away you know with some answers about what this mm-hmm. really represents what this is yeah and yeah, i think that um, yeah i you know i i find year in and year out that when you break down those barriers to entry right when you make it a safe space to just encounter something mm-hmm. um people usually end up much more interested and much more invested in it um than you know they they ever may have thought themselves to be right absolutely yeah so let's kind of circle back to um, mm-hmm. just talking about some of the relevance of these stories and and yeah. also thinking through like the contextualization of of these stories and how how relevant that contextualization mm-hmm. is. Um, I think when we read some of these stories that are you know a century plus old, they come from a very different social, economic, political background. And, yeah. and may have some ideas that maybe aren't so palatable um, to, mm-hmm. to, you know, the, the current moment. For example, we, we, we do encounter a lot of stories with, like, a lot of sexism or, you mm-hmm. know, stories with a lot of racism. Yeah. Um, how do we, in your opinion, you know, what is our duty to, to try to contextualize these stories, uh, you know, in their, their 
political moments. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, does that excuse the racism or is it something that you feel like we still need to grapple with in right. you know today's moment? Yeah, definitely. I love that you start with that word excuse because that was just on the tip of my tongue. Um, you know, we, we really have a responsibility not to excuse it or um, to say in, in terms of like, justifying it that it was a different time um i think it's critical to note that it was a different time though um and and that's again i think there's a difference in excusing something contextualizing it um Mm -hmm. just so that you know especially um from the perspective of a you know a person who is teaching a class for instance um or as someone who's you know selling a book to a stranger um you know i don't want people looking at and saying hey this is um, this is okay, or, you know, it, for some people, this is okay. It's a relative thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it has to be contextualized and it has to be something that we, we understand going into it. Um, and it's just such a great way also just to start those conversations, you know, why was this considered okay? Um, mm-hmm. and why don't we think it's okay? Mm-hmm. And that's the whole point of great literature. Um, I also think about, oh, I wish I could remember her name. I think it was Pamela Paul um, wrote a, a piece for the New York Times. I think it was, it was a few years ago, maybe 2017. She wrote a piece for the New York Times that was called um, Why You Should Read Books You Hate. And mm-hmm. it's all about how um, reading books with strong ideas, regardless of whether you agree with them or not, is really healthy for your um, your intellect. Um, there's, you know, there's research that shows that strong ideas in books, whether they're things that we say like, I believe everything I read. And, you know, if I read a book with racism, is it and I'm going to become a racist, you know, that's not the approach that we want to take. We want to say, hey, if there's a strong idea um, about the human condition and you read that, your response to that's your, you know, that that's your mm. responsibility. And reading a book with a strong idea that you disagree with you know, that's something that can that can really edify you and help mm. you to understand yourself and your values and your your ethics better. Um, and hopefully also, you know, there's there's definitely sexism, racism, racism, but there's also just less offensive things that, that we might buck against, mm. um, you know, things that may be more um, philosophical or um things that are more ethical um or political you know that you read in a book and and you just might be like "Mm, you know the way that that character responded to this or the way that the writer presented this you know makes me feel kind of uncomfortable Mm. that can be a great way to to deepen your understanding of yourself and the the universe that you want to be a part of Mm. so kind of an approach of like you know look critically at this stuff right you know yes. don't don't just yes. kind of ingest it but 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 ta- you know like really tackle grapple with it mm-hmm. um and, yeah and through that process you know maybe we can we can learn a bit more about ourselves absolutely and i think it's really important especially i think in this current moment um we're vacillating between different extremes of how do you respond to things that are offensive mm-hmm. um and i under i completely understand and respect an approach that's like, you know, just put it all in the dustbin of history. And for sure, there are stories and there are even authors that their stuff is just, it's not worth reading because it's heinous. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I'm not one who would say, you know, burn the books then, but I would say, <laughs> I'm not going to waste my time reading that because it's garbage. But yeah. I, I think we, we have a really difficult, uh, there's something that's not really good about a society that says i just if i don't agree with it i i don't even encounter it yeah and i'd encourage people you know check out stuff that you disagree with or that makes you uncomfortable yeah yeah it i think that's a it's a tough thing to do um and i i worry about this frequently you know as as i Mm -hmm. encounter older stuff um i read a i read a story the other day uh about a dude with ghost arms um (laughs) <laughs> I wish I remembered the title of the story. It was a guy who had his arms cut off by like an African tribe or something like that. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then, you know, ran through the rest of his life with ghost arms doing, mm-hmm. doing the work for him. And, um, uh, for, you know, the, for, for one thing, I, I felt really upset about the story, 
um, having been reproduced because it it did have a kind of like British imperialist racism mm-hmm. attached to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I kind of frequently wonder as I encounter these things that are reproduced in in different spaces, you know, mm-hmm. um, are we are we reproducing the best stuff? You know, like right. What about this story? You know, meant that it it deserved reproduction. Um, exactly, and, and was yeah. there something in there, you know, that did I miss something or or was mm-hmm. this stupid story, you know, just kind of like it was pretty dumb. And also, you know, I like kind of unpalatably racist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what is our duty when we, you know, come to these things, you know, whether to forget or to to reproduce and, and yeah. talk about, you know, um, it's a mm-hmm. I think it's a tough line. Well, for me, I mean, the author that jumps out in in this kind of conversation automatically is like H.P. Lovecraft and his overt like racism in his stories. But it wasn't until Mm -hmm. I read um, Mikhail Ulebeck's, I think I'm saying that name correctly. I don't know. It's French. So we all, I mean, anybody Mm -hmm. who knows me knows my my abhorrence to French, (laughs) (laughs) my my difficulties with it. Um, I think it was a creative writing class, kind of a quick aside that I... I first started teaching a creative writing class and like I get to the, the story structure part of the class and I'm like, so kids this, you know, you get to the climax and then after that you have the denouement and they're like the what? And I'm like, Oh wait, they know that's French. It's pronounced denouement, but it's like, okay. So, um, but, uh, yeah, Mikhail Ulebeck wrote this, this biography of Lovecraft called against the world against life something like that. Mm-hmm. And it really details um, his, not just his, who he was as a person, but also kind of his, his racism and his, yeah. his worldview. And I think getting that kind of story about the author so that I could understand kind of where these stories are coming from, I think helped me yeah. kind of contextualize yeah. the importance of them and, and exactly how to process them in it, today's world. It's such a difficult line to tread, you know, trying to mm-hmm. determine like the importance of this thing, you know, this, the importance of this story, like with Lovecraft, who has been so mm-hmm. influential in an entire genre of horror. Because right. he's almost yes. one to me, like you were saying, that that could be canceled. I mean, we could totally just quit reading him. But there is, I think, I mean, an it, important. It's real, yeah. It's really interesting because you know you look at um, just how um, overtly racist he was and how entrenched he is mm. in the community in the horror community. Um, you even think about like Lovecraft Country and how that's an, an overtly yeah. anti-racist yeah. series that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Lovecraft. Um, the title of the book that you mentioned, I, I haven't read it, but just against the world against life. Um, I'm pretty sure that was the title. I think it was such a good, it, whether it's the real title or not, it's such <laughs> a good way to describe him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it, it really hits on issues that I have with Lovecraft because, um, you know, I really enjoy his mood and his twists and his perspective, yeah. but I'm not a cynical person as much as I love, you know, weird fiction <laughs> or, um, I'm, I'm a pretty idealistic person and his stories a lot, just the way that they're, they're very misanthropic. Um, and they're mm. very, they hate on human beings a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it reminds me of that, that New York times article, um, with the, the basic thesis of, you know, strong ideas, um, are worth contending with. Now, obviously there's some extremely strong, extremely not cool <laughs> ideas that you shouldn't, <laughs> contend with but just the idea of like you know how do we view humanity and how do we view ourselves are we is there an worth to humanity these are things that are worth talking about because if we don't talk about them other people will um and those people you know if we just say well we're not even going to go there um there these questions bubble up in the human consciousness and it's important for us to have conversations about them so that they don't get repurposed by people with, you know, with very nasty, violent um, um, approaches, you know, to how mm. we answer that question. Yeah. His nihilism um, would, would really be the thing that I yeah. want to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, definitely he's one that it's it's kind of surprising that he hasn't been canceled yet. But, <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I, I think it's it's important. The, there's three criteria I have when I'm putting an anthology together, um, as far as like whether this makes it or not. And one is, is there a critical conversation around it? Like, is it mm. big enough that that in the in that literary sphere, people you mentioned the title and people are like, oh, I have an opinion about this. Right. One way or the other is if there's a critical conversation about it then it's probably worth considering. The other is, it, is it creative? Um, is is the world that it's presenting, is it a good, you know, um, are there things that surprise you? Are there things that when you read the story, you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that, or that's really interesting the way that that happened. And then the third is, is it a good story? Is it entertaining? Because mm. um, again, I, I return time and time again um, when I talk about these, these topics to the point that just because something's old doesn't mean that it's mm -hmm. good and just because something's old doesn't mean that it's you know it's uh horrendous you know right right um because right. That, that's another thing is the oh well victorian fiction well gosh you know you know what that's going to be like first page it's going to be racism and sexism <laughs> um and especially weird fiction there's a lot of that yeah weird fiction its focus is more on emergent horror on like where are we going as humanity mm -hmm. And so, unfortunately, a lot of times they will turn to, um, you know, racial um, or sexist or, you know, just any sort of um, devaluation of human life. They'll use that as a metaphor, mm -hmm. um, which is deeply unfortunate and disturbing. But what's interesting is, like, especially if you look at, like, the Victorian ghost story, most of the best Victorian ghost stories were written by women writers um, and they tended to be women writers who were socially marginalized mm -hmm. because if you're writing for a living, something is probably a little yeah. bit off with um, with your expectations during that time period. Um, <laughs> and so usually these are like single moms, um, women with drunks for husbands, women from families who uh, are somehow socioeconomically disadvantaged mm -hmm. or single women who never married and need to like find a way to provide for themselves. Mm -hmm. So the ghost story is interesting and in that it is now there's, there's just societal things as far as race and, and gender that are going to just be part of that society. But the mm -hmm. Victorian ghost story is uniquely, um, uniquely interested in the stories of marginalized people and communities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I do get some pushback on, oh, you, you know, classic horror. Well, that, you know, Lovecraft, that's what you're talking about. I haven't yet done a book on Lovecraft. <laughs> um, I do think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about one that's maybe not going to be his quote unquote best stuff, but a subset of his work in the future. But I am really interested in how surprising Victorian Gothic literature can be in that just because it is old doesn't mean it's innately evil or or mm. depraved or right. um you know he so, somehow anti-human um but yeah it's it's an interesting question yeah i i really like that you bring up uh the the women writers of victorian horror um i agree with you i th i think some i think some of the best the best horror fiction definitely comes from the women yes. writing in this period um mm -hmm. i i think when i when i have my ideas of of uh, you know horror fiction and the stuff that i kind of write i i feel like i'm constantly coming back to them because their mm -hmm. voices are so very clear and the, the criticism yeah. that they lay onto the world around them through their the allegories they use in their fiction is mm -hmm. um is wonderful it, it's, it's I, yeah i i think they're some of the the, the best writers out there yep. mm -hmm. so um let's talk a little bit about how you annotate um, some of your work because I, I know that um, you kind of blend a, a style of annotation you'll have some mm -hmm. that are just you know kind of definition based and then some that are a little yeah. bit more conjectural about you know mm -hmm. what what do I think that this passage is really meaning right yeah. like what's the subtext that maybe we're not mm -hmm. talking about um, because of you know the the obscurity of the language or the way that uh, some of these writers kind of syntactically hide information mm -hmm. from the reader that we're left to infer. Um, yeah. How, what, 
what does your process for annotation look like when you start and what are some of the materials mm -hmm. that you utilize in order to build out those yeah. annotations for your readers yeah so um i use a lot of um, databases and um and resources at like my local library uh, and then there's of course lots of books that i own that i'll pull pull out um, when i'm looking for uh, materials to kind of clarify things that i don't personally know um the way that i go about that is I will you know pull up the story um, on Word and I will just read through it and anytime I run into a word, a term, a reference, or uh, a a piece of the story, you know, an element where it's like, oh hey, there there needs to be a signpost here to say this is a big deal and this theme that is beginning right here, it's going to be important later on. Um, anything that pops out to me as something that maybe I, I might say like 14 year old me would not know <laughs> or would want to know more about that's the audience that i'm writing to is you know mm. a 14 13 year old um you know reader who's just running into this and and i know that the by and large the people who <laughs> buy my books it's not you know young teens but just that kind of uh, i don't want to make assumptions you know i don't mm. want to assume what people know or don't know and then as, as far as like some of them are definitions some of them are expanding on concepts the reason i do that is because I, there's been books i've bought before that are you know quote unquote annotated um like there's in particular uh, an edition of Twenty Thousand Leagues under the sea that i have that there's there'll be like four pages at a time where there's not a single note and then there will you know there'll be one footnote and it'll just like be like submarine the submarine was invented you know in 1842 <laughs> you know or whatever and it's like well you know i don't really i mean that's kind of interesting but there were dozens of things over here that i would have loved to know more about you know but mm -hmm. you're just giving me the definitions and stuff or like you know uh, definitely I, I think back to you know in 2012 when i first came up with this idea the two books that really it's interesting on um, the two books that really gave me trouble that inspired me to do this one was lovecraft um mm. it was one of the del rey editions of yep. i think it was called like blood blood curdling um, masterpieces of the, or tales of the macabre or something like that yeah yep. um so there's that and then there was a collection of ambrose beers um that was his best ghost stories by dover mm. um and both of them had like I mean, the introduction to Lovecraft, I think it was August Derleth. So, you know, here's the guy who knows what he's talking about. But, you know, going through the stories, there were all these times where I'm like, wait a minute, I wish I knew more about this moment mm. or about this, like, character because I, there's something here. Like, I know there's something here, but I can't figure it out. Yeah. Um, and then you look it up online, and, and in 2012, less so today, but in 2012, <laughs> there just wasn't stuff online about these stories. Like, no one cared about them. Like, you look up... Yeah. Um, you know, maybe uh, John Steinbeck or stories by F. Scott Fitzgerald. There's going to be stuff to that. But like these guys, you know, it's like, I don't know, just read the story. It's spooky. You know, it's a spooky <laughs> story. That's all, that's all there is to it. And yeah. so um, I, going through these stories, I just see kind of like, where's something that I would be annoyed? And maybe this is the, the biggest key. I would be annoyed if I was reading the story and a commentator didn't put a footnote um, to, to clarify a thing. So that's, that's kind of the process they go about. And then, of course, there's other like random stuff like I try as best I can to do any currency conversion. Um, mm. As I mentioned before, it just blows my it just drives me nuts. When, <laughs> well, you know, and, and he slipped him a half crown. Okay, what's that even mean? <laughs> what is that in British currency? And then, as as an American reader, is that like a tiara or something? Is it... How many ducats then, to a florin yeah. over here? Yeah, exactly. And then, what is that today? You know, because right. like that's another thing is people will be like, mm -hmm. well, a half crown, uh, you know, half crown is two and a half pence. Okay, what's <laughs> yeah. that mean? And, and then I don't know what that is in American, and I also don't know what that is in twenty twenty two. You know, so right, just right. little things like that. Or references like, for instance, uh, and one of the stories that I recommended for the next episode, they referenced the Crystal Palace. 
just mm. like you should know what that is and you know what that means what's the crystal palace you know so those sorts of things i like to again remove those barriers so folks mm. who are reading it um aren't going to be as like tripped up by or annoyed because honestly yeah. it's less like oh you got tripped up by that it's less <laughs> that and it's more like this is annoying because you're talking about stuff that i don't get nor should i be expected to get yeah see now i don't feel so bad because trevor made fun of me one day because i didn't know what pence was like a, it was like we were looking <laughs> yeah. at like like a payment for like an overseas magazine or something i'm like oh it says 5p that's pent or that's pounds and he's yeah. like no that's pence <laughs> that's pence bro and i'm like, and I, like, I'm like I, I don't know british be... money I... <laughs> yeah that stuff I, can be super confusing. I only give you shit because I'm British. <laughs> yeah, I know you are. Yeah, so, yeah. like, my, you know, like, I don't know. There's some stuff in my lexicon that I know a little bit more about. I um, I think it's really interesting, your your approach to, you know, annotation and, and just, you know, speaking to that, maybe that 14-year-old in all of us that, that, you know, doesn't quite know some of this stuff. My approach when I read a lot of it, because I, I don't have critical editions that are, you know, this nice or, or this detailed. Um, most of the, the way that I encounter um, any of these Victorian stories are through, you know, like the big, massive reprints that certain companies yes. do. There's um, yes. there's like a whole series, I think, that Barnes & Noble has put out with Fall River Press. In the, and mm-hmm. it's just like they're, here's your... You know, it's like yep. the, the bonus box fiction, you know, this stuff that we can produce mm-hmm. really, really cheaply and people will buy. Like $8 hardcovers. Yeah. 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 But mm-hmm. I think what frustrates me about those anthologies is like, for one, they're not very discerning about the no, quality of the, the stories that go in there. So I, I encounter, you know, like the ghost arms story was in one of those. <laughs> um, that was just yeah. like, man, this felt like a huge <laughs> waste of time. I don't even know, you know, what it was trying to allegorize. It was just kind of mm-hmm. stupid and sensational. Um, but they also do nothing to, to contextualize, you know, any yeah. of these stories. I, in, in some of those anthologies like Fall River Press, um, there's not even an introduction, you know, to any yep. of the writers. You, oh, you don't know that. who <laughs> any of these people were. You don't know mm-hmm. when they were writing, what country they were writing from. I mean, most of the time it's just like roll some dice. It's either U.S. or U.K. and most of them U.K. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But um, I yeah I, I find it it you know kind of frustrating that there aren't as many of these really well written annotated editions. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's also fed into some of the way that I read this material because, you know, you mentioned like the Crystal Palace and I, you know, that's uh, something that I would just gloss over because I'm like, you mm-hmm. know, that's what does that contribute to the story? But I think to your credit, when you annotate it, I think it 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 adds depth, right? It gives us a, a depth mm-hmm. of cultural reference that maybe yeah. alludes to some of the subtext that we might be missing, well, um, it, if it, you know, by not living in that moment, it forces me to slow down because Trevor and I have had this conversation. He's a a particularly and he he's an, a consciously slow reader, so he can get yeah, as mm-hmm. much as he he wants. And me through grad school and stuff, I just learned how to be a really fast reader. Yeah. So when I have yeah. these annotated texts in front of me, I'm forced to slow down. I'll read like a passage, and then I'll go back through it, and I'll see where like you've you've uh, numbered, like you you've listed your. Mm-hmm your your points and so then i have to go back and reread the annotation and then reread the sentence where the annotation is like leading yeah. to so it's forced me to and i i appreciate that because i'm getting a lot more mm-hmm. i feel like out of the story yeah so um as we kind of like start closing out this episode mm-hmm. um i just kind of want to throw out some fun questions out there go for it um what was like one of the first stories that you feel really like got you into horror, like got you into oh, oh, this yes. stuff. <laughs> yeah, is there's no question. I'll, I'll have to think about that at all. Is the Legend of Sleepy Hollow? Oh, um, yeah. <clears throat> when dude. I was here, here's another uh, throwback to the late '80s and '90s. When I was maybe three, I think three years old, I was in daycare, and they showed mm-hmm. the um, 1946. Um, I think it was 46, but the the Disney Disney one? Bean yeah. Crosby. Yeah, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Now, 
as a as an adult watching it, no problem. But like you look back, it's a scary. <laughs> as a, the as second, a kid, or, it, I, it I suppose the, you up. the final third of that movie is really scary. Um, but <laughs> I was just sucked into it. I loved it so much. I loved. I think what was so engaging about that story, um, and then I became obsessed with it. And Washington Irving is like he's like one of my favorite writers. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love Washington Irving. He's so funny, mm-hmm. and he's he's very antithetical to a lot of the horror um, that I do also love and, and read and publish because he's so sarcastic and snarky um, and fun <laughs> and lovable. Um, but yeah, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow totally sucked me in. With it's It has this universe where there's these unspoken rules yes. of what you do and don't do, and there's a community that fosters these rules, yes. and they try to pass them on. And Ichabod Crane is a character that defies the community. Yep. Um, you know, he's he's an interloper. <laughs> he's essentially a uh, a colonizer of New England yes. uh, ethics. <laughs> you know, he, he tries to colonize this Dutch community with um, you know who have a different approach to life and are less like cynical than him. And he tries to colonize them by. Um, you know, hooking up with Katrina and <laughs> Brom Bones is essentially a hero. We usually look at him as a villain, but he's a right. hero. He yeah. bites Ichabod he, off with chases him off. their local lore. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, definitely Legend of Sleepy Hollow. I'm obsessed with it. And oh, that gosh. was, uh, the, I did a, an anthology of Washington Irving's best ghost stories. Hands down, my favorite All book right. to annotate. You sold I me. I'm, I'm going to have to go buy yeah, it. Yeah, we got to go get that one. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't even, until you brought it up, I didn't even know that I wanted to talk about Washington Irving or The Legend of Sleepy Hollow because I think <laughs> The Legends of Sleepy Hollow is a, oh man, that is a fine piece of literature right there. It, it really is. Um, and yeah. I, I think what's great is that, like, it does have the ghost story, you know, in a mm-hmm. way, in a sense that, that people remember, but I also think it's way more politically aware of its so. moment and people <laughs> yes. miss that people think it's just about yes. you know like the guy with the flaming pumpkin head and he throws yeah. it or whatever and like that's not even the point like the whole point is like no. like uh um ichabod crane's a he's a jerk he's a <laughs> he's, a horrible he's a totally he's a total jerk and uh and and washington irvin i think like makes a caricature out of him almost with mm-hmm. his like weird his like weird face and his like huge nose yes. yeah and uh yeah, he's he's kind of he reminds me i don't know if this is uh too deep in the weeds but he reminds me of um i think his name's malvolio or malvolio in the 12th <laughs> night yes. by shakespeare because he's this yes. like preening social schemer who's so weird and creepy <laughs> yes. and over the top oh my gosh i'm so glad you dropped malvolio because yeah. my students are reading 12th night right now which is <laughs> such of, a good, oh my gosh one play. of my favorite one of my favorite <laughs> shakespeare plays you're blowing my mind um <laughs> No, but I, I think that, uh, I mean, Ichabod Crane is kind of like, he's the quintessential, like, British colonizer, right? Yes, like, like he absolutely. is just, like, allegorically British imperialism. Yes. And, and, and the fact that he's so oblivious um, mm-hmm. to the local customs and, and just like, <laughs> mm-hmm. like you say, kind of the, the ethical responsibility, I think, to observe these yeah. local com- customs and, and value them, right, is what makes him such mm-hmm. a terrible person. He Oblivious just, and yeah. dismissive. And he's, oh, he's so because dismissive. he thinks he's dismissive, so superior yeah. to everybody. Yeah, exactly. Thanks so, for bringing that up. That was, um, no problem. That, yeah, yeah, my that favorite is... story. I love it. <laughs> So are there any um, projects you're working on now that you want to share with us? So I'm actually, it's kind of an offshoot. Um, And part of this is because uh, I, let's see, in September, I started doing this full time. I made this my full time gig and I stay home with my daughter. And so staying home with her um is in some ways it's softening me up a little bit and so as a as a little bit of an offshoot um i'm in i'm between horror projects right now i'm kind of trying to decide which one i want to do next but while i do while i kind of decide this i have started um to cultivate a a series of uh classic adventure novels so um, i've done treasure island um the red badge of courage is what i'm i'm wrapping up right now okay. and then after that i'm looking at like Twenty Thousand links under the sea and robin hood and yeah. kidnapped and stuff like that Oh, that's cool and this is 
a little less rigorous. It's still, they're going to be fully annotated, mm-hmm. but these are a little bit more fun. Um, and so the, are you going to do your illustrations with them too? And yes. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I want, I want to include the illustrations, um, as well, but, uh, so that's something that just, it's a little less, um, because adventure, adventure fiction is just genuinely a little bit more for the entertainment. Right. Yeah. So that's something that I'm working on. And, and, you know, if anyone has ideas, they're welcome to, uh, to go to my website and email me, um, if there's like a specific horror writer that I should tackle next, but I just wrapped up MR James Mm. and that was like a marathon because there's so (laughs) much to MR James, especially when MR James is, he is the HP Lovecraft, not, um, with the racism and stuff. I mean, obviously there, you know, as a a British man, a Cambridge man from the early 20th century, there's going to be some of that, but he's more the the hp lovecraft of england in the sense that um he's just like so well known and so beloved so working on him was a deep slog (laughs) and it was a lot of work so i'm kind of taking a break but um i am i am open to ideas as far as who i tackle next I'm kind of thinking maybe E.F. Benson, who's one of M.R. James' contemporaries. I mean, that was so going to be, be the guy I tackle next. That was going to be my suggestion. Would be I e. love E.F. Benson. Yeah, he's a very interesting man. Have you done Lafcadio Hearn yet? I haven't. No, but th- that is a guy who's definitely on my radar, um, and I love his writing. Mm. I mean, he was always interesting to me. Is this is he British or American or? But he goes to Japan. He's Irish. He's Irish. That's right. yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, I believe if, if I remember correctly, I think he's I think, Irish. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And he goes to Japan and just kind of adopts mm-hmm. or, you know, of course that's another kind of issue is this, this whole, um, uh, not adoption of the, yeah. Repackaging of the, somebody else's culture, or this kind of, you know, I, I do think that there's a, an interesting conversation to be had about appropriation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and whether or not, Thank you. That's you know, the word I was looking whether for. or not that representation <laughs> is appropriation or not, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think, how different is it from like what Neil Gaiman was doing with like yeah. his most recent Norse mythology, right? Well, not just um, his Norse mythology, but also like um, uh, not American gods, but like Anansi boys, where he's taking like this African mm-hmm. and Caribbean kind of culture yeah. and mythology. And I think, uh, yeah, I, th- I think in a way though, you know, there's there's some repackaging when when it's done. I think in order to open a door, right, open a gateway yes. to. Uh, a literature that that we have ignored yeah. um mm-hmm. and i think that that trying to make it a little bit more trendy for your audience to say hey there's a lot of stuff out there that's really really interesting you know um i i feel like there's a there is a need for that right there is a need yes. for those those cultural bridges that can bring mm-hmm. us into these spaces with what is both familiar to us and very unfamiliar I feel like with her, um, so long I, as it acts as a bridge, right? Like the right. intention is not mm. to be the authoritative source on these things, but yes. rather the gateway to which we we can then encounter the originals. I feel exactly. like I feel like with her, and he, I mean, knowing his kind of a bit of his biography, I feel like he was just he appropriated the culture in that he went over there and just kind of made it his own lifestyle. But then professionally, yeah. he's bringing us these stories that he's like open. He's doing like Trevor's saying, he's opening these doors that are like, yeah. yeah oh, he was, here's this for the yeah, rest of the world. Absolutely in love with Japanese culture. I mean, literally, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he married a local, he adopted the local customs and religion. Um, you know, this Hearn is a, an individual who, his approach it's you know he's not kipling um he, he's not yeah. you totally <laughs> just adulterating a, another culture yeah um i yeah Hearn definitely did it in a very respectful way and i think yeah. he's a good example of that of how yeah. to do that respectfully yeah i agree so um where can people find you to find out more about your upcoming projects yeah so um i'm on my website is oldstyletales.com and I'm also on Instagram, Old Style Tales, um, or at Old Style Tales is my handle. Um, and then other than that, I'm not on a lot of social media, but those are the two places that people can find me. So um, definitely, if you're more interested in the illustrations, the, there's tons of them posted at my uh, Old Style Tales Instagram mm. account. And then if you want to look at the books, um, and, and also I have a blog 
that I think is, um, I, I get tons of correspondence from folks uh, who have like run into a confusing story and they found a blog post that I did about it. Uh, and that seems to be really helpful to people. Mm, cool. So uh, the blog, which is obviously linked to in my website, I would recommend that for someone who maybe wants to kind of dig into this stuff um, without having to buy a book, you know, yeah. and then um, obviously that can be a gateway if you find a particular story um, that you're really interested in, you might check out that book by that author. Cool. Awesome. And I think we're following each other on, on Instagram. So yes, we I will, but we're also, we're on Twitter and, and some other things. So I think we'll, we'll share like all awesome. your posts and stuff on across thank the you. board. So yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Well, um, thank you for joining us for this episode. Um, it was really, really awesome to, to speak with you and, uh, you'll be returning yeah. for another episode, right? Where we I talk will. about, yes. um, some short stories. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Great talking guys. You take care. You too.